0: Last week as we kicked off this series in Colossians, and what we're doing is we're having somebody read each week, and uh, I've asked the elders to come up. So uh, uh, Stephanie Larson, one of, our, one of our elders' spouses, came and read First Service, and then Dennis Merck, uh, one of our longtime elders, is going to come up and read Colossians 15 through 23. As he makes his way up, uh, I just think it's really right and appropriate that as the Word of God is read, uh, that we would stand just to position our body in a way that says we are honoring what's being read.
1: proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister.
0: Amen. Thank you, Dennis. You guys can go ahead and grab your seat. If you want to just go ahead and keep your Bible open to Colossians 1, chapter or chapter 1, verse 15, we're really just going to walk through these eight power-packed passages here. And let me just kind of give you like all my cards down on the table. Um, this This verse right here, especially 15 through 20, this is why you preach the book of Colossians. I mean, th- this verse is where we just get to see this gigantic. Picture of Christ and who He is and the scope of what He does. And so I'm a little amped this morning. I might talk a little faster than normal. I might get a little excited. I might yell a little bit, but just know that that's enthusiasm for this passage of scripture we're in. Uh, It's not the fact that I'm mad at anybody or or really anything like that. It's just kind of full disclaimer here as we jump in. Um, If you remember last week, I just want to make sure we have the context clear before we dive into it. Um, Paul is writing this letter to a church in the town of Colossae. And this town's a small town off the beaten path a little bit. And it's the body of believers he's never even met before. And so it's this church that Paul is writing to, to encourage. And if you remember last week, he intros his letter uh, with a prayer of praise. He just says, I thank God for what's happening in your church. He doesn't say, uh, Colossae, hey, here's the attaboy, here's some kudos. You guys are doing a really good job. No, he starts off his letter by saying, praise God for what he's doing amongst you. And that's a subtle thing to note, but it's significant that Paul doesn't start by saying, man, church, great job. Hey, you're doing a really good job. He says, no, praise God. He is doing a work among you. And then the second part of his intro is a prayer of petition. So he praises God and then he petitions church in Colossae. Would you just press in all the more to what Jesus is doing? Would you just be strengthened? Would you grow? Would you see to it that this thing comes alive in you? And so this week, what he's going to do is what I kind of set up last week is that Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't address the heresy. He doesn't address the false teaching that is creeping into the church by making a great deal of the false teaching. But rather what he does is he makes a great deal about Jesus. He makes this huge deal about Jesus. And, and the problem is not the church in Colossae dethroning Christ, or I'm sorry, that is the problem. They're not denying him. They're not denying Jesus. They're trying though to dethrone him. And there's this thing called syncretism going on. Remember the world of Rome was shrinking because the Romans have been or the roads have been invented and now there's access to all these different towns, all these different kinds of people. And so the church was was kind of infatuated with, oh, well, these, these Jews have some cool things going on in the way that they worship. Oh, these, these pagans have some things going on that seem to be working well for them in the way that they worship. And they're kind of doing this spiritual build-a-bear, if you will, where they're just piecing all these little things together, Jesus being one of the pieces, but he's not the focal point. And what Paul means to write is he goes, he's, try, he's trying everything he can just to say, no, it's Jesus who is in all, above all, through all, by all. Everything is found in Jesus. And it's just this good little point, I think, even as, as we interact with the world that we live in, that Paul doesn't major on the minors. Like he doesn't get lost in the details of trying to trying to confront this and trying to nitpick this thing that's going on and try to try and deal with this issue that's going on over here. But rather what he does is he just says, get your eyes off yourself and look at him. Look at Jesus, consider him, marvel at who he is and what he's done, and that will influence and affect every part of who you are. So so as we come to it today, what we're gonna see is that Paul makes this really big deal of Jesus and he establishes firmly who he is and he establishes that he is in fact God. And that creates for us a a huge problem, a huge problem in, in the fact that we have all sinned. We've all messed up. We've all gone astray. We have all uh, rebelled at one point or another, but then praise God, there is a marvelous and magnificent truth to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's my outline today. That's where we're going. That's where the text goes. If you want to jump right in, we're going to start in verse 15. We're going to bounce around to different passages in different books and whatnot. So he, he opens by saying he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And it would be easy to skip past the intro to this, what's called the Christ hymn. These five verses found in 15 through 20, uh, his like theologians will call the Christ hymn, where Paul is just singing. He's just declaring these praises of who Jesus is. And he opens it by saying he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I wanna clarify a couple of things. The image, that word image for the invisible God means the exact representation of, of. And so it's this picture of of a mirror. It's it's exactly what you would see—the perfect reflection in a mirror. It is when you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at God. And and, and this is just—it's good to note, like man, the mirror—the mirror ain't lying. You know what I'm saying? Like that might be a frustrating truth for some of you guys. It might be exciting for some of you guys. But what what you see in the mirror, like that's what's there. You know what I mean? Some people—I was reading an article how it's like, man, can we please just like leave the masks for a little while? Like I really just like my face better with a mask on. You know. It's like, no, like what's in the mirror, that's there. That's what it is. And what Paul says here, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the icon. He's what we're looking at. What we're seeing is God when we see Jesus. So there's, a lot, there's lots of different ways in the world that we're living in and in the word that God says, this is how I've revealed myself to my creation. So in Romans chapter one, Paul elaborates on how, no, uh, the world itself, the creation itself, when you see it, it testifies to the fact that it's been created. Like, like you don't just look at the mountains, you don't just walk through the woods, you don't just see the ocean, and you don't just see the stars in the sky and go, man, that all just seems to be one gigantic cosmic accident. But no, your heart goes, this was placed with intentionality, with purpose. It was created, it was ordered by God himself. Creation bears witness to the fact that there is a creator. We, We also have the fact that the law, the laws of God have been written on our heart. Like, so you and, I, you and I understand morality without being taught morality. We know when we're breaking rules, even if we've never even been told that's a rule that you shouldn't break. And because God has written his morality, he's written his, his law into us so that we would know that when we're breaking the rules. And we, and we know this, right? Like, you don't have to read all the Bible to understand the sense of guilt when you have fallen short, when you've done something wrong. The fact that we have God's law written on our heart testifies to the fact that somebody put that there. Morality is absolute. It's not subjective. It's not changing. It's not progressing. So that to the point where things that were once good are now bad and things that were once bad are now good. No, morality is morality. It's absolute. It's universal. It's unchanging because God made it. We also, we also see that uh, Solomon writes down that God has written eternity onto our hearts. And so it's this idea that like at every funeral, you feel this where, where, where it's just like, man, this life was cut short. There's something, there's something beyond this. This shouldn't be happening. And we all have this sense that, man, we belong to this, this thing that's bigger than this 50, 60, 70, 80 years, whatever we have here on this earth. There's eternity that's at stake. And all of those things, creation, the law, uh, the way that the world is, works eternally, all of that bears witness to the fact that there is a God, but nothing gives us the image of the invisible God like Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the absolute reflection. He is God. When we see him, if you want to get to know the character and the nature of our God, you have to look no further than Jesus Christ, because he is God. He's the firstborn of all creation. What I want to address here is that firstborn, you might think of firstborn as in order. And this could lead you to some very dangerous thought to think that Jesus was created. Jesus was not created. Yes, he was born of a virgin, of the Virgin Mary, right? He was born, but that is him being incarnate, putting on flesh, coming to this earth. But Jesus has existed eternally. He's been present always. He was not made. He's always existed. He's always been, and he always will be. Like there is no, even though we get to see him in his human form, that is not how he has existed always. It's not how he's existed always. The firstborn, it's interesting, this word is actually used, it's protokon. It's actually been used in the Old Testament, not just to communicate first in order, as in Harper is my firstborn daughter, but it's also used to communicate significance. Firstborn as in first and the highest priority. And that is what fits the context of the rest of Colossians 1. Like, why does this matter? It's because because, uh, cults and things like that will make Jesus to be a created being rather than the creator. And we just can't let any of this drift happen. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is God. And so John captures, captures this idea in John chapter one, where he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So this, the word, the word was there in the beginning, creating everything is God. Who's the word? Well, he answers it in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When you're seeing Jesus, you're not just seeing a man, you are seeing God himself. Our all-powerful God, uh, all of creation was also made by him, through him and for him. Paul captures this idea that like everything that you see and everything that you don't see everything that was created from, from the cosmos to the molecules, everything was made by him. From, from the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly realms, the, the angels, the demons, everything was made by him, through him and for him. So he was present and actively working in all of creation, creating everything. I, one lady who came up afterwards, or my grandma, actually it wasn't some lady, it was my grandma. How, how dare I forget? She comes up and she's like, well, then why did he make mosquitoes? And I'm like, grandma, I don't, I don't know why he made mosquitoes, but here's the thing. He did. He made it all. Everything has been made by him. Everything was made through him and everything was ultimately made for him. So, so in the next following verse, after 17, he says, and he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So it's not just that he was present at creation, actively spoke the world into existence, and then is not involved anymore. This should, this should comfort our hearts this morning that God is actively holding everything together. He's involved, he's near, he's close. Like, like my, my 1994 Jeep Grand Cherokee is, Cherokee is being held together by the favor of the Lord right now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Your body, my body, some bodies better than other bodies are being held together sustained by the Lord. But it's not, just, it's not just us. It's also like the ecosystems and the world that we're living in. Every, all the systems, the seasons, everything was created, ordained, orchestrated, designed, and is being held together by Jesus. He's doing it all. And our all-powerful God, it's not just that he's the firstborn, he's the image of the invisible God. It's not just that all things were made by him, through him, and for him. It's that Paul also says we ought to see him as preeminent. Preeminent. So all things are held together by him. He's the head of the body, the church. I wish I had more time. I would go into how Jesus is Lord of the church, not just Good Shepherd Church, but he is Lord of the church. Amen? That's why we come together and we can pray for other churches in the community every single week. That's why we can send dollars over to Israel, over to Malaysia, down to Haiti, all over the world every single month because we are involved on team church, everybody. I didn't have the time to say it, but there I said it. So now let's keep going. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He might be preeminent. What, what, what Paul's trying to communicate here is not just that everything is made by God, for God, through God, but that everything is ultimately pointing its way to God. So this is, this is something that we all have to feel the weight of this morning, that every single person is, is on a path towards Jesus. And you can't get off that path. So Jesus will ultimately reconcile all things to himself. This is really beautiful for, for the, the the world that we're living in, that, that creation itself groans with the pain of sin. And so that's why we have all these different things that are going wrong in the, in the natural world that we're living in is because it's not just human beings that feel the effects of sin, but creation itself has now been fractured, tilted off of its access because of sin. And one day God like God, even the trees that are in your backyard are on a path towards Jesus. And one day he's going to redeem and restore restore and reconcile all the things that are in this world to himself. And that's really fun to think about with creation. You go, oh my gosh, what is this world even going to look like? It's going to be more beautiful. It's not going to have the effects of sin in it. And that's going to do something, like it's going to level up somehow. I'm like, yeah, I don't understand all of it, but it's going to be amazing. But the harsher thing that we have to understand this morning is that we are also on a path towards Jesus because we were made by him we were made for him, which means we're ultimately heading to him. And so everybody, every single person, every single person in this room, every single person in your life that you know, that you work with, that you work out next to, that you see at King Supers, everybody is on a path to Jesus and it's inescapable. Everyone will have to answer the question, what have you done with Jesus? What have you done with him? because we just, I think maybe it's like our entitlement culture that we live in, this kind of like, uh, I deserve, I should, I I ought. And we we just, we feel this, I think in America, mostly, I don't know that it exists quite like this in the rest of the world. um, But like here in America, here in like middle-class, pretty comfy Loveland, what we feel is we feel like this like oh, like I really should have the car with the cooled off steering wheel and the heated seats and like all that stuff. I'm not, if you have that, I'm not knocking that. I, th- I think that's awesome. Um, I'm if, like the 94 Jeep Grand Cherokee. Like I, I think of that often. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, that would be amazing. Um, but, but what we do is we build our lives around comfort. And we really build them around ourselves in the world that we're living in. And the economy that we live in, like capitalism itself wires everything towards the consumer, which uh, you gotta hear me like, <laughs> I think it's awesome for the marketplace. I do. I think it's like, I think it's one of the coolest things ever that I have headphones uh, that like connect to my phone without having to be connected by by a wire. And I can skip tracks by just squeezing the thing. I think that's incredible, but it's not the kingdom of God. And, and, And I think what we tend to do is we let this idea bleed into our faith where we look at God and we, based on our behavior, based on the things that we're doing, we say, God, why are you not? God, why, where's the blessing that I think I deserve? God, how come you haven't? Where have you been? And what I just need you to see in these first five verses here that we're looking at today is that everything belongs to him. We don't deserve a thing. The fact that you and I are even here is a gift by God. He, he created it all. He could end it all in just a second, but he has chosen to create us. He's, chose, he's chosen for us to be here. And we don't deserve, like there's nothing that we deserve to get from him. But because he's a good God, he has given to us life. He's given to us food. He's given to us pleasure. He's given to us relationships. He's given to us all these good things. But church, like let's not get it twisted this morning. None of that is earned on our own merit. That's all given by his good nature. So, so when you start to really look at how powerful Jesus is, I think what it, one of the things it has to do is it has to create a horrible reality for your heart, for your soul. Because once you gaze upon how big and how awesome and how majestic and how worthy and how holy and how perfect Jesus is, that only starts to magnify the fact that you are not like that. You, you are not like that. And Paul confronts this in verse 21. He says, and you who were alienated, you are alienated. You have been estranged by sin. You you were once here. You have been alienated. You've been removed from that place. You, you think of the Garden of Eden, this place where we belonged, walked with God, where we should have been in His presence. But because of sin, that relationship has been fractured. We have now been estranged from God. We are not born into this into this like relationship with Him. We're born depra- depraved. We're born apart from Him. Sinful in our nature. And, and you feel this in the world, like because of Adam, we are all in the bloodline now of the effects of sin. That's what we're all born into. It's not just that we're alienated. It's that we're also hostile, he says in verse 17. For you were alienated and hostile in mind. In other words, rebellious in thinking. And so there's two ways that I think this really plays out. The first way is that God, Jesus, who has authored, who has created, who has designed all of life, We look at his rules and we go, yeah, no, thanks. I'm going to choose my own way of living, right? We've all participated in this, where we see his design for sex. We see his design for relationships. We see his design for the way we should handle our money. We see his design for life itself. And we choose rather than to listen to the creator of life, listen to the author of life. We say, no, I think I have this figured out, Jesus. Thank you very much. I will choose my own way. And we're rebellious in our thinking. It's like, it's, you never look at the, the owner's manual for a chainsaw and you go, oh my gosh, these rules are just so lame and they're just really harsh in my vibe, bro. It's like, no, that, those rules exist to keep you living, to keep your leg attached to your body. But we look at the Bible and we say, oh my gosh, well, how dare he impose his rules on me when I'm just like, he's the author of it all. He created life. He designed how it works. We should listen to him. But we're rebellious in our thinking. We rebel against his, against his kingdom. And that's the right word, rebel, because because we think of sin and we we'd like to kind of relabel it as maybe like just a character flaw or it's a struggle. But really, sin is the author and designer of life and his kingdom and his ruin, his reign as Lord over creation. And we see the way that he's designed it to work and we rebel against that king. That's what sin is rebelling against the king. But the other way is a lot more subtle and that's a lot more common in church. So we have rebellion against the kingdom of God by just like not listening to him, which we've all done. We've all participated in that. But we also have this one that's really common in church where we actually just try to uh, earn his favor, earn his grace uh, by just behaving a little better, right? So let me, let me just kind of give you a story to really lay this one out there. And this is maybe gonna be more graphic than you asked for. Um, but here we are, it's too late to leave. Doors are closing right now. No, I'm just kidding, they're not. Um, we're potty training our three-year-old daughter. Any kids in the room? Any little kids? I see some little kids, parents and little kids. You just like point right at them. It's just like, okay, come on. I see you. Um, our three-year-old daughter is potty training right now. You can pray for us at any point that you would like. And uh, it's, it's just, you know, she comes into our room the other day. And, uh, our, you know, our upstairs, like our, our room is just off the kids' bathroom. And so she comes in. She's like, I peed. We're like, great. Any potty training parent knows the next question. Where? Where have you peed, honey? Please show me quickly. <laughs> and, um, she peed in the bathroom. That's uh, okay. Not in the toilet, right? <laughs> so there's just pee all along the floor there. And what's like adorable, because you got you to gotta laugh at it, right? Because otherwise you're just going to get just soul-crushingly sad. Um, but like there's, there's toilet paper strung out all in it. She tried to clean it up herself. Which is like adorable, right? It's so sweet and you know, and so, but she just made more of a mess really because now there's just toilet paper that's wet and strung out everywhere. You know what I mean? And uh, this is what I think Isaiah really captures the heart of when he says, your self-righteousness is like filthy rags before a holy God. And so us in our self-righteousness, we get caught in this game of comparison. We're thinking, "Oh, well, I'm, I'm holy because I'm holier than that person. I'm, I'm saved because I'm, I'm more Christian-like than that person. When really all of that self-righteousness in your own effort is like you trying to create a, a, like clean up a mess that you could never clean up. You're just, you're just moving it around. That, like that's the other way that we're rebellious in our thinking is by thinking that, that our holy, perfect, just, awesome, mighty, powerful God, we can entertain and we can buy his favor for our life by the way that we behave. And by the way that we act, and by the way that we clean ourselves up, because we're better than. And I, again, this is like another thing that I think we live in, in the world, where we just are so competitive, and the way that we're accustomed to, and used to building ourselves up, is not by like evaluating our own behavior honestly, and intellectually going like, okay, well, how am I behaving? How am I improving? How am I growing? But rather, what we would love to do is just evaluate our behavior by putting other people down, and going well i'm not as bad as and i don't look like and i don't have relate and, and we just we pin other people down so that we might feel better in our own heart about ourselves it's rebellion in the way that we think alienated from god hostile in mind doing evil and we're wicked in nature like if you don't, if you don't buy into like, there's just a lot going around where it's like, no, you are, you are good. You're a good person. Just learn these couple extra things and you can just do better and you can be good. And I'm like, compared to what? That's always my question. Like compared to who, what are you, what are you evaluating against? Because we certainly can't be good compared to a perfect holy God. No, every single one of us is wicked in nature. Again, if you don't, if you don't believe this, just have kids, just have kids. like, I love my kids dearly, but like their natural response to things is not yours. Here you go. This is yours. Yours. Here, let me give this. It's yours. Have this back. No, what's their reaction? It's mine. Give that to me. How dare you take away Mickey Mouse Clubhouse after I've been watching it for four hours? It's like just this, they're just, we're, we're so selfish. We're so self-oriented. We're just wicked in the nature of who we are. We got to be honest with ourselves. We desire things that God tells us not to desire. We pursue things that God tells us not to pursue. We rebel against his kingdom. We do things that he, we know that we shouldn't be doing. And yet we, we see the momentary thing in front of us as more worthwhile than a lifetime of devoted worship to Jesus. This is what we do. And so Jeremiah writes it down this way, because I just, I need you to feel this because you're probably right now, you're like, where's the good news in this sermon, man? Like, this is rough. <laughs> I need you just to feel this. Jeremiah chapter two lamenting to Israel, God says, be appalled, O heavens, at this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So if you know Israel's story, if you don't know Israel's story, let me just give you a little bit of background. But uh, doesn't it just feel like when you're reading through your Old Testament, you're just like, why in the world can't these guys get this right? Do you know what I mean? Well, it's just like, man, y- y'all were saved in just like this crazy way out of captivity in Egypt. God rolled up and did these 10 awesome, just crazy things. Then he opened up the Red Sea for you just to walk across and then swallowed up the army that was chasing you behind you. And then he led you by a pillar of smoke and fire. The presence of God himself was just like leading you through the wilderness. Like what would, if you saw that, how would you neglect him? Right, he gives you daily bread. He enters into covenant with you at Mount Sinai. Even though like when Moses is up there getting, uh, like covenant, um, the commandments 1.0, you're down at the bottom of the mountain uh, building a golden calf. So he comes down, he destroys 1.0, has to go back up, get 2.0. Do you know what I mean? Like, and it's just like, you're literally looking at the presence of God on the top of this mountain. You decide to worship a golden calf. I just, you just look at Israel and you're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? How is it that you have, you have forsaken the fountain of living water? He gave you this promised land. You're living in a land full of uh, wells that you did not dig, vineyards that you did not plant. You're living in houses that you did not build, and you're neglecting the one who gave it to you. How does Israel get off? Don't you ask yourself that question. We do the same thing. We're the same. We're the same. We are the exact same. We've experienced the presence of God. We've seen His goodness, His mercy, in His word. We've seen His goodness and mercy in the way that we get to live our life. We, he's He's has common grace has poured out so much just in the way of food and relationship and pleasure. All these different things that He's given to us, and and we we neglect Him, we forsake Him, we literally will abandon Him to do our own thing at times, won't we? And it's not just that, but we'll hew out different cisterns or we'll put our hope in other things that can't hold that living water rather than just continually place our hope in Jesus. So I'm not anxious. I'm not bent out of shape about what's happening in the market right now, about what's happening uh, with the presidency right now. I'm not bent out of shape about what's happening with COVID right now. I'm just going like, no man, I hope in Jesus. And my hope is placed in him alone. But rather we we all get caught up putting our hope in those things, don't we? And that's why we feel anxious. And that's why we feel nervous. And, and God is saying to the heavenly host, he's like, be appalled at this fact. I've revealed myself to them. I've been plain to them. I've showed them my goodness and my love and my mercy, and they've abandoned it. And church, we've done the same thing. That's the horrific reality that you and I live in, is that this, this magnificent, awesome, all-powerful God has been completely neglected by us. But praise God, there is still a marvelous gospel. So he goes to say, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, verse 21, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus came in the flesh, he, he, even though he is this awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing, uh, all-present all, all, uh, God, he lays that aside, he empties himself, so that he might take on flesh, walk amongst us and experience the life that we've experienced, only not fail in any way ever. He lives this perfect, perfect, holy life. He does everything right. And that God who is the same God that we talk about in 15 through 20, that is so awesome, goes to the cross and he makes peace with his creation by the spilling of his blood. This is the glorious gospel. That, that even though that was us who deserved that punishment, even though that he could have put that punishment on us and it would have been righteously uh, given to us. Do you know what I'm saying? He instead took the punishment on his own shoulders. Hebrews 2 puts it this way. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation payment for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus has gone through everything that you're going through and he walked through it perfectly. And so the the good news is we've been reconciled in flesh because of his death, but we've also now been presented holy. So it says we've been reconciled in in the flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, here's the problem with this is how many of us consistently feel holy? Holy. Well, we don't, right? We don't always feel holy. If we could sit down and talk about the mistakes you made this week, I would guess you'd have a few things that you would share with me, right? And then there'd be a whole other bunch of things that you that you didn't even know that you messed up that you did mess up this week. And yet, Paul writes that man, you've been reconciled in the flesh, presented holy and blameless before Him. And so, you have to understand, church, we have to embrace that there is a difference between being positionally holy and behaviorally holy. So, positionally. Our holiness has been given by Jesus. That if you, if you profess faith in him, if you confess your need for him as Lord and savior in your life, you are now positionally made to look holy. You are wearing the righteousness that Christ had on him. And that is how God sees you. Positionally in front of God, you are holy. Regardless of what mistakes you make, you are not gonna be perfect. And yet at the same time, we have this behavioral holiness that we're so aware of because we're saying, man, I'm just so aware of how I didn't act like that guy. I didn't act like Jesus in that moment. And what the Christian faith is all about is us, while we realize and recognize our positional holiness, we try and work on and embrace our behavioral holiness while we kind of go round and round, up and down at different times, going up, up, up until we just like for the rest of our lives, until we look more and more and more like Jesus. Our behavior holiness hopefully is going to keep progressing. It's this process called sanctification that you and I are in for the rest of our lives. But you're never going to keep pressing in. You're never going to desire more if you don't understand the fact that no, because of Jesus, because of this great, awesome, mighty God, even though you had sin in your life, he died for you. And he made the propitiation, he made the payment for your sins so that you could stand before God, holy, blameless, confidently approaching his throne all the more while working out this behavioral holiness. But here's here's what we try and do. We try to we try to lock in on that behavior and we try and look at the different areas of our life where we're so aware of the fact that we're not acting the way that we should act. <laughs> and 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 a lot of sermons and a lot of things that we hear in church and a lot of the I mean just go over to Barnes and Noble and look at the miles of pages in the self-help section that's over there. Like what you'll see there is all of these different Tactics or different ways that you can try and improve being a little more behaviorally holy. But what Paul does is Paul says it's not about trying to add this accountability partner or do these three things or do these six things that you can be more like Jesus. He says, No, you need to consider just how awesome and how great Jesus really is. And as you get lost in beholding the Lamb of God, as you get lost in looking at Him, then you're going to be made more aware of the sin that's in your life and you're going to start taking that sin more seriously. And as you do that, you're going to be all the more drawn to the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for you in the middle of that sin because he is God. And he chose that he was going to save his creation. And, and now in the gospel, my only response becomes worship and gratitude, thankfulness. God, who are you that you would do this for me? Who am I that you are mindful of me, God? You would do this for me. And this is what Paul writes as he closes. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. I think a lot of the way we would read that in American church language sometimes we go, if indeed I would just continue coming to church, stable and steadfast, not shifting from this behavior or that, but continuing to go on in perfection. That's not what it says. That you would press on in faith, clinging to the hope of the gospel. The gospel was just as relevant for you when you first accepted it right now. The gospel means just as much for you right now as it did when you first received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You are still being sustained and empowered and and sent by grace through faith. God's not impressed with our self-righteous acts. He's most most pleased in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's a John Piper line. That's, I mean, you can look that one up later. It's pretty good. Here's what I just want to, I just want to invite you just to um, consider for a moment. Because I think there are some people who probably came to church today and, and, you're, you're approaching sin very casually, or you're really just thinking that you have a better direction and vision for your life than Jesus does. And I think, I think the invitation that's before you today is not this like repent or burn. It's going like, it's, it's God saying, I have authored all of life. Will you trust me? Because Jesus has better vision. He has better clarity on what's, what, what your soul needs than you will ever have. And so, the, especially if you don't know him today, my, my invitation for you is just to, uh, would you just, I'm gonna pray in just a sec, and it, would you just, in your own heart, would you just say, God, I trust you. I have sinned, but I wanna follow after you. And I, and I thought about, do we have people stand up? Do we have people raise their hand? I think there's times where we'll do that, and it's important that we do that. But today, my, my urge for you is just to, and would you just be intellectually honest enough to say, man, I have to do something with the person of Jesus. And then when you're sitting there praying in your seat, Would you just, if you make this decision, um, I don't think standing up saves you. I don't think raising your hand saves you. I think what saves you is a heart that confesses that Jesus is Lord and that you need him as a savior. That's what saves you. And so in that, as you wrestle, as that desire begins to grow in you like a teeny little ember, if that's all it is right now, would you just keep plugging in? Would you just keep hanging out here? Would you talk to some of the people in this church about that decision? And would you just let that teeny little ember fan into flame of faith? That's my hope. And then for the rest of us, like I know so many of us, we've made this decision. And I think what Paul invites us into today is to really just walk through those three little steps that we would get lost in how great and how beautiful and how awesome Jesus is. And that we would let that then kind of reveal where sin is in our life or maybe where we're not trusting in him or we've hewed out our own cisterns. And then would we we rest, not in this like moral betterment for our life, but would we rest, we find peace in the gospel of Jesus Christ that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And, and that's, that, this is just this invitation that we have, that you have this week. I, like I only have 35, 40 minutes to open up a sermon with you on a Sunday morning. You have access to this book all day, every day. Would you, would you spend, when you have 10 minutes between a meeting, when you have the five minutes before you lay your kids down for bed at night, when you have that first few minutes in the morning where you're drinking coffee, will you just open this book and will you just marvel at who Jesus is? Get lost in who he is. Keep coming back to him. Let him gently, but, but, but in a real way, reveal the sin that's in your heart. And would he direct you and bring you back always to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are saved by faith through his grace. Amen? So let's stand and I want to pray. And I just, I do want to encourage you, if you're a person who's not walking with the Lord, maybe you went to church when you were a kid, maybe you're, maybe you're just new to all of this scene, I just want to encourage you to lay your life down in this moment and trust that he has a design and a will and a picture of your life beyond what you could ever imagine. And so Jesus, right now, for anyone who's in the room that just wants to give themselves to you, I pray that they would just confess that they've sinned, that they've fallen short, but that you are are now the person they're going to turn to, to be Lord and Savior of their life. That we would believe, all of us together wholeheartedly, that you died, were buried, and you rose again triumphantly. And I pray that as a church, would we, ju- would we not just get lost in, in the sin of our life? Would we also participate in the resurrection and the victory and the triumph over sin? Would we, would we make much of your name in any space, in any place that we go, any conversation that we're in this week, would we be unashamedly on team Jesus? God, I pray that we would magnify your work in our heart throughout this week. And, and I pray that we would get into your word, that we'd press into your presence, God. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.